Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, this is episode 258, and I'm recording it on Sunday, June 7th, 2020, starting at 2.05 p.m. Today, I'm going to be talking with Diana Rose Harper about the astrology of radical self-care. Uh, hey, Diana, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So the, the genesis of this episode is that uh, you gave a talk on this topic at the Northwest Astrology Conference last month uh, that I saw that I really liked. Uh, so I wanted to have you on to talk about this topic and sort of get into the details of it. Could we? Is there like a short description, maybe, of what we're going to be getting in today that you could sort of explain for those questioning whether or not they want to listen to this episode? Yeah, totally. So, um, radical self care is a, is like a way of thinking about self care that goes beyond. The most surface level, like markety kind of versions of self care that exist in the world right now. So, mm -hmm. this is, um, you know, it's an approach, it's a mindset, and it's, uh, it's a way of getting at sort of the, the causes or the roots of why certain forms of self care are required in this day and age, and um, like really digging into especially um, the things that influence our sensation of worthiness as well as our judgment of other people's worthiness as well. So it ends up being self-care that is not only actually about you, uh, it's also about the world around you in a way that um, I think can really support people in like being the good people that they aspire to be um, mm -hmm. in a more foundational and enduring and kind of I don't know, deeply stable way, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, totally. That makes um, complete sense. Thank you. That was like a actually super and way more concise definition than I, I could have pulled off. Mm. Um, and that was one of the things I loved about your talk is that you didn't take, you never take anything for granted and you are always very careful to define your terms mm -hmm. um, ahead of time. So maybe in order to start, uh, since it's your first time on the podcast and just to introduce you to the audience, um, I often ask people like what their background is in astrology or or what their sort of journey with it has been up till now. Yeah. So um my real first introduction to astrology was when I was a kid, I think, as is true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, like I distinctly remember reading the newspaper horoscopes, um, especially when I was at my grandparents' house, because we always got um, you know, the paper every single day. And so at breakfast every day, I would read the comics and the horoscopes were always right by the comics. And I always thought they were really interesting, even though they had no relevance to me as like a seven-year-old. <laughs> sure. um, it felt like there was something there, even if I didn't understand what was there. And even if I didn't feel like the depth was being presented there. And so, you know, I would go to Barnes and Noble and I would like, you know, kind of scope through some of the esoteric books and things like that. Right. Um, that was a bookstore, like for those that aren't familiar with oh. what what those are for the, the younger, younger people listening to this episode. Yeah. Barnes and Noble was like, Barnes and Noble and the library were my favorite places as a kid. So, um, but Kind of extending out of that, um, I distinctly remember this was like my favorite part of elementary school, actually. Um, at one point, those, you know, those like dome tent things um, that like they'll travel around and then they'll like project constellations into the ceiling of. 
Yeah, like the astronomy, um, like a bubble mm-hmm. or almost, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one of those came to my elementary school when I was in like fourth grade or something, mm-hmm. and I just got obsessed with the constellations. And my grandparents and I used to go on these like long, like three-week road trips, and we would camp the entire way. So I got really into like, you know, like the fact that I could see the constellation Draco in uh, like the Outer Banks of North Carolina, as well as in like the Rocky Mountains. And I thought that was super cool. It just that that whole um, containering, I guess, of just like the whole world together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't get super into like astrology, astrology um, until college, really. Like I did a little bit in late high school, but college is really when it started to take off. And that was a part of really it was a lot of trying to figure out who I was and what I was here to do and why my relationships were the way they were and knowing that or feeling like the other explanations that had been given to me were insufficient. And so Mm -hmm. as I worked more with astrology and like did the whole autodidact self-teaching thing with it, um, a lot of patterns um, revealed themselves in you know, the way that astrology like kind of opens up. Mm-hmm. And then after college, that's when I found uh, Richard Tarnas's Cosmos and Psyche. And so before I read Cosmos and Psyche, my experience of astrology was like super personal. And like, you know, I shared it a little bit with my closest friends, but it wasn't something that I was um, out of the broom closet about, so to speak. Sure. Um, and as I read Cosmos and Psyche, like, you know, in this book, Tarnas goes through all of this history, which like I had been experiencing in college um, at a you know pretty high level, but then adding a layer of contextualization that just um, kind of helped pull out the materialist skeptic from my head in a really good way, a really like helpful and like opening way. Um, so then I just like dug even deeper. And eventually I went to um, UAC 2018 because that happened in Chicago. I went to college in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for a decade. Um, since it was happening in Chicago, there was absolutely no way I was going to not go. <laughs> sure. Um, and like, that's where I met you for the first time. That's where I met like a lot of people for the first time. Um, at this point, I had already been listening also to your podcast, to the astrology podcast for a couple of years at that okay. point. Um, mm-hmm. And being at that conference and interacting with astrologers and astrology enthusiasts solidified how valid a study and how valid a practice this is in a way that hadn't landed for me before. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so that's when I really, I guess, kind of married myself to the practice. Um, What was the intersection with um, the idea of self-care or like radical Mm self-care? Yeah, so... Before I claimed the title of astrologer, I was a Reiki master. Um, Mm. I was um, a body worker. I was a clinical massage therapist. Um, And I was oriented towards doing um, deep care work with people. Um, Like after college, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, You know, I worked in a rare books library. I worked for a medical terminology company. Um, And the the thing that really came through for me, and in part this was like me understanding my seventh house more, um, mm. but the thing that came through for me is that I really wanted to be working with people in order to support them 
in whatever healing work that they needed or wanted to pursue, like whatever kind of tending and, um, I don't know, softness, I guess, they needed in order to uh, grow beyond traumas um, and things like that. And at a certain point, I thought I was going to go into some kind of mental health counseling program or um, like a PsyD program or something like that. Um, and I actually worked for a psychotherapy practice for a while as their intake coordinator. And so I'd been doing different kinds of like self-care oriented things with people up to that point. Um, and I'd also in private been doing a lot of what gets called shadow work. So just like really going deeply into your own experiences and composting um, the muckiest bits of that. Um, and as I was working at that psychotherapy practice, I was you know, it's a practice that's very aimed at um, like LGBTQ plus affirmation. Um, and the majority of clinicians there fall somewhere on that spectrum themselves and are serving clients that's that fall on that spectrum. Mm. And I was observing them burning themselves out. Like they were doing this work of tending to marginalized populations. There are also um, several um, therapists of color serving populations of color who were also LGBTQ+, etc. And like as I was observing that and as I was also experiencing the burnout myself, I was like this is like why are why are we doing this? Like what's actually happening here? And so then there was kind of a a concatenation or like a collapsing in of things that I learned in college around um social systems and like the history of colonization um and like the history of domination uh, and things like that. Then combining with the work that I was aiming to do with um, like with individuals of like wanting to support people and then witnessing people who do support not supporting themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that kind of swirled into um, an approach or a theory or a way of thinking that um, understood more clearly. I'm not going to say I understand it with absolute clarity, but understood with more clear with more clarity the um the influences of systemic things on individuals mm -hmm. and how even when we're attempting to address systemic things with our work outwards, if we haven't done that work inwards, we actually end up kind of um mm, how do I put this? Um, undermining, I think is the word that I want here. We kind of undermine our work. Um, and so when I was at that psychotherapy practice, one of my bosses and I were talking about this and she was like, do you want to teach this to, to us? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, and so that turned into a continuing education unit, like a CEU granting um, workshop. And, you know, again, part of this is also if you personally don't think that you deserve care, that you deserve rest on a fundamental level, even if like on the surface, you're like, yeah, totally. Like I deserve to take a nap. Like if you don't actually feel that in your bones, but then you tell somebody else that they should totally take a nap, it comes more from a place of like paternalizing mm. than from a place of like genuine care and like genuine, like kind of embodied knowledge. Um, you know, even to like make like a huge kind of leap connection here, like before I went to UAC, I knew that astrology was a real thing and that people made their entire careers about it, but I didn't know 
that there were so many people whose entire lives are centered on astrology until I was surrounded by like 1,400 astrologers. Right. Like the embodied sensation of that is part of the depth that um, a radically self-caring orientation brings. Um, and whenever you're really like getting at like, okay, what are the roots of this and what are the things that are gnawing at my roots to a certain degree? Like that's mm -hmm. when um, more profound... I don't know, more profound care, I guess, can happen. Yeah, because one of the things <clears throat> when you talk about self-care, that one of the points you made in your lecture was that it's not just about physical things, which is usually what we think about when we think of the term self-care is the the commercialized sense of it, but also can be extended to things that are mental or emotional or or spiritual, which includes mm -hmm. things like therapy and self-inquiry and by extension things like astrology or tarot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, maybe let's expand on that a little bit to set the foundation and build it up because I, I realize we're not going to be able to do it as like effectively as you did in your your lecture actually, where you spend a lot of time like building each of these points up. But what in in terms of self care, um, why is that important, or why is self care important? Because people will burn themselves out otherwise, or what other deeper things are important about that as a topic? Yeah, so burnout obviously is a key part of it, especially for people whose, you know, work or vocation in the world requires tending other people. If you burn out, then that's that many fewer people that you're helping, or mm. that's that um, it diminishes basically your capacity to be effective at being helpful in the world. Sure. Um, and then there's also, you know, and like this is one of the things that I think is relevant in this moment. Um, there's also the fact that. Um, when we do deep self-care, it's not just about like actively then being better able to help other people like in a really direct fashion. Mm -hmm. um, it also improves our spaciousness as we interact with other people because part of radical self-care is questioning some of the beliefs, um, like the super baked in beliefs that you don't even realize are beliefs. <laughs> um mm -hmm. You know, questioning those things in a way that then facilitates you having more agency in choosing how you perceive other people. Mm -hmm. um, and in turn, also, you know, how you perceive yourself, how you perceive your own value, how you perceive the value of other people, um, how you perceive the levels of threat that another person might be coming at you with. Um, it, it opens. It, it can, right? It can open the door to um, genuinely more compassionate and more connected uh, relations with all kinds of people. Um, and when I say that, I also will include like non-human people in that too, eventually. Like, you know, I think a lot of people need to start with their human relationships, but this can also improve your relationships like, you know, with your plants or with your pets or sure. with uh, the city that you live in. Um, or, you know, like I'm someone that's pretty concerned with ecological things. Um, mm -hmm. and I have found that, uh, certain aspects of performing some radical self-care with myself, like doing radical self-care with myself has also then helped my, um, my relationship with like occupying earth, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and understanding like my responsibility and also what I can't be responsible for. Um, so 
Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So what are some of the questions? So part of your premise is that in order to truly be able to have self-care, radical self-care, that you have to question what some of your underlying premises Mm -hmm. are that you might be taking for granted, that you don't even realize you're taking for granted, Mm -hmm. that sometimes are just inherited um, about your life. Uh, What are some of those things that people might be taking for granted or the questions that they should be asking themselves? Yeah. I mean, oh man, there are so many different ones. Uh, The one that just comes to mind is running water (laughs) Mm. Um, because it is something that uh, we're culturally just so used to. I mean, at least in the United States, most places in the United States, barring, um, like I know that there are Native American reservations that have a lot of struggle with actually having like proper water infrastructure in place. But for the majority of the people listening to this podcast, I imagine that running water is not something you ever think about as like a special magical thing that like happens in your day-to-day life. Um, And that's something that whenever you question, like, why do I assume that running water just is a default? And can I take some time to consider what all has had to happen in order for me to have you know, potable running water come out of like multiple different faucets in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that process can help to kind of, or, you know, especially if you then take that further, like who doesn't have access to this? Right. Um, and why, like, why don't they have access to this? So it's like, like the identification of something you're taking for granted in your mm-hmm. life, but then also the extension of what if that wasn't something you took for granted, or what if you're interacting with somebody that that wasn't taking that for granted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you can take that further. Like, what does having running, like clean running water in your house facilitate for you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it means you don't have to boil your water or use iodine tablets. It means you don't have to go fetch water from a particular source. It means you don't have to worry about whether... Like there's a runoff happening from a hog farm into your main water source as you go to fetch it or any number of things like that. You can take that as far as you want. But then with part of, part of that, and I think this is maybe, you know, one of the important next steps is understanding that there will be, there can be feelings of like shame and guilt that come up whenever you realize that you're taking something for granted that isn't actually a default for all people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you recognize that there's shame and guilt, you can also be like, okay, but what, what, if anything is available to me to do about this? Right. And then from there you can do what is available to do, for you to do, even if that's as small as like recognizing that it is a fortunate thing that you have something that you've taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're trying to identify because it's not just limited, obviously, to like ecological things. Like that's a really good example. But then universalizing that to all other areas of your life where you might be taking something for granted versus something that that not everybody takes for granted. Because this was in, in the genesis, part of the other genesis of this episode was after hearing your talk, I immediately connected it to a discussion I had with Benjamin Dykes in episode 19 of the Astrology Podcast. Where we framed it in terms of objective versus subjective reality and how people often have I was frustrated working with clients after years that I would, I would see people would frequently have blind spots in their mm-hmm. lives, either about th- about things that they took for granted, and sometimes those are positive things that they took for granted and they just assumed everybody 
had that, or other times there would be negative things that they took for granted and kind of normalized and just assumed that it was the same way for everybody. And um, when I was listening to your talk, I was realizing this is sort of an extension of that or a different angle and looking at the same thing, which is sort of like blind spots that everybody has in their lives in terms of things that they take for granted to some extent. Yeah, totally. And as I was listening to that episode in preparation for this conversation, one of the things that um, I think radical self-care helps with whenever we, you know, up, like approach astrology from a radically self-caring perspective is um, bringing in the systemic influences on our lived experiences. So someone who has like a specific good thing or a specific not so good thing happen consistently in their lives, like there's a good chance that they are surrounded by people who are having a similar experience. And that is part of what gives them um, the space to universalize that experience. Mm -hmm. And so by like doing some deeper inquiry around like, you know, is this actually universal? Like, what does it mean if it's not universal? <laughs> um, what does it mean to either want this to be universal in the case of something like clean running water or wanting it to be something that just never happens and so that nobody thinks is universal in the case of like a more negative experience? Like then, you know, that that ends up being a really interesting process too, just like recognizing the existence of systemic goodnesses and ex like systemic badnesses. Um, and then also, you know, as you look into like the historical records of why certain things are the way they are, why certain perspectives are the way they are, that also gives you room to be like, okay, so this isn't um, like a cosmic fact always. Mm. Um, you know, there might be a cosmic indicator in my chart that might point to an experience like this, but that doesn't mean it's a universal fact for all of time. Um, so then how can there be greater agency there in terms of um, adjusting or removing or adding to these systemic structures that um, delineate the edges of people's contextual existences in a way that influences their individual existences? Okay. Yeah. So that's sort of the step towards that is first towards Radical self care for the self is first like acknowledging uh, systemically conditioned beliefs and values and moral assumptions that you're making about the world, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and recognizing that they're systemic and not like inherent to, they're not like inherent to humanity, I guess, sure. is maybe one of the things that I like to put forth is like just because it's extremely common doesn't mean it's inherent to being human. Yeah, I like that because in the episode with Ben, it's like we were focusing on individuals doing that about <clears throat> oftentimes like having a benefic, like the most positive planet in a certain house in their life. Like, let's say Jupiter in a day chart, really well dignified in the second house, and financial matters always came easily to them, or maybe they were born into a family that had financial wealth, and therefore that was never something they struggled with. But instead of being able to see that, they would it was just something they took for granted. And so mm -hmm. if you as an astrologer gave them a delineation saying it looks like financial wealth is in it, finances is an area that you you have the most fortune with or or don't have, struggle as much, much with compared to other people they would often not really recognize that because it was just something mm -hmm. that they took for granted 
So for you and the additional angle that you're coming at this with is people not just identifying those individual things, but also broader systemic things um, that they might be taking for granted as well. What are like some examples of that, or what areas can we talk about besides like ecologically things that people might be taking for granted? Yeah. Well, I mean, I love this example of like a dignified Jupiter in the second. Um, mm. Is it like Warren Buffett has that right? Is that true? Um, maybe. I mean, um, I was using like Jupiter Pluto conjunctions recently mm-hmm. for like Bill, Bill Gates has like Jupiter, mm-hmm. I believe, in the second house conjunct Pluto. Um, but yeah, you might be right about Warren Buffett. Yeah, and like so that's that's a good example of um, you know whenever you can take take something that's been really good for you and recognize that it's been really good for you for reasons that are beyond your personal control, mm. then that can open the door to understanding. Okay, so why is it that I benefit from this, and are there people who don't benefit from this, and why mm. too? And what's important with this is to go beyond. Um, you know, and this is something that I talk about in my talk, which is this idea of deserving good fortune and deserving bad fortune. Right. Um, and I am vehemently against <laughs> the idea that people deserve good fortune and deserve bad fortune. Um, because that then kind of places the onus on the individual when very, very often, certain like significant portions of good fortune and bad fortune are not actually, um, up to the given individual. And this is one of the things that you and Ben talked about in episode 19, which is like, you know, like, you know, not directly, but even thinking about like zodiacal releasing periods or periods when particular planets have stronger influence than other planets, um, using timeler techniques. And there are going to be some times when, financial things are favorable and financial things are less favorable. And we can put that in the context of something like astrology. So if you have a really dignified Jupiter and you're in a Jupiter ruled year, and when Jupiter, when in your Jupiter ruled year, Jupiter is also in a very dignified position and has like minimal interaction with malefics, like that's a way of kind of con- contextualizing the not your own choices that are influencing something really fortunate happening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's like a removal of personal fault without necessarily removing personal responsibility, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, just distinguishing that there's sometimes things that are in our control and our power and actions that we take that have results, but sometimes there's things that happen to us that are completely outside of our control Mm-hmm. And recognizing that as like a major category, which is ironically, not ironically, but it's kind of important, especially in the modern age or in the modern quote unquote like new age community, where from like the mid 2000s forward, there were things like the the spirit and other things, or not the spirit, the, spirit, what am I the thinking? secret, the secret, the secret um, in terms of manifestation and the idea that anybody can manifest anything that they want just through pure intention or will willpower. Versus recognizing, in some instances, that's not necessarily the case, or at least there are some things that are outside of our control, and that that's an important category of events to recognize. Yeah, Saturn influences, <laughs> like Saturn sure. puts limits on things, and mm-hmm. Saturn frames reality. And if we even think about, um, you know, it's like there is like this meta orientation that's like, well, your soul chose to be incarnated into a particular situation, which mm-hmm. like. 
that's a different conversation than like your incarnate human consciousness making a choice to be born into a particular situation. Sure. Right. And I think that's that's one of the important things to keep in mind whenever we're engaging with something like radical self-care or engaging with astrology to comprehend like the the frameworks of our lives, um, which is the you know, the chart is like I think the the phrase that you and Ben kept referring to is like astrology is not omniscient in mm. that it can know all of the details. Like a given chart can be for a person, it can be for a horse, like, you know, referring to like the Ptolemy um reference, which I'm going to let you like talk about in just a second. Um sure. but just to kind of go on with that, which is just like a super well dignified Jupiter in the context of someone who is mar like systemically marginalized is going to be experienced differently than someone who is systemically extremely elevated because of systemic things. Um, Maybe we should define systemic really quickly for those not mm -hmm. familiar with the term. Yeah. So when I talk about systemic, um, I mean like the the collection of cultural norms and policies that put limits around people's existence in some way or that put structure around people's existence in some way. Um, so, for example, um, whenever people talk about systemic racism, this is not talking about individual people being racist to other individual people. It's um, things like policies in the mid, um, in the like mid twentieth century, that prevented, like you know, like actual policies on like books, like legal policies that mm -hmm. prevented um, certain like people of certain races from like buying houses or um, getting mortgages or owning property in the same ways that um, people who were considered white were able to, and mm -hmm. so that then puts into the system a lack of ability to build wealth through property for particular populations that's mm. again it's not individual to individual it's like policies mean this entire population exists differently than this entire other population or has right. to encounter things differently than this other population does um so even if there's outliers, it's the systemic. Systemic is um, the policies put in place that apply to people almost universally as a as a class or as a group of people um, mm -hmm. that are setting them apart in some way. Yeah, and you know that will then like extend into like maybe not on the on the books, but you know institutions orienting in particular ways. Um, so. I'm just trying to even like think of a good example. I mean, even after like the 9/11 attacks and there was a massive amount of racial profiling towards Arab-looking individuals, mm -hmm. um, you know, that is putting into place a cultural thought like uh like um like a cultural orientation to having suspicion towards particular people because of what they look like even mm. though what someone looks like does not actually tell you very much about what they believe or what they're about to do. Sure. Um, you know, if you're just like looking at someone's face straight on and you're not, you know, that's not going to tell you actually that much um, mm. about 
what someone believes, generally speaking, um, or what they are going to do. And that ends up saturating the, um, like the, the, the term that I use in my talk is like the, the collective unconscious, which Mm -hmm. I use, um, beyond just the Jungian sense. Um, but it influences like the zeitgeist in a specific way, um, that is very broad, um, and very influential that goes beyond again, just like one-to-one interaction. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea that there could be broader, like cultural notions that are current in like, let's say society that are, um, not like transcendental, like spiritual things, but are actual things that are there just below the surface of large groups of people's sort of Mm -hmm. consciousness in some way. Yeah. And that then directly influences the uh, lived experiences of individuals within that society. Okay. Um, So this is important because uh, you make a number of points about this, but it ties into the deservingness and undeservingness. But you said that no person is born, quote unquote, deserving to live a life of destitution and unending suffering due to systemic inequity. And then also conversely, no person is born, quote unquote, deserving to live a life of materially materially abundant ease due to systemic inequity or Mm -hmm. inequity. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So um, that's important for, for Two, because it sort of get ties into a later discussion about ideas of like of privilege and like what a person has and when that's used in different ways. But maybe we could, maybe that would be a transition point to expanding on that in terms of this notion of like deserving, deservingness or undeservingness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think like one of the things that I observe as an American living inside of American society who critiques a lot of the ways that the American mythology does not play out in individual people's lives as much as the mythology might promise. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this, the concept of like the, like the heroic individual and like the bootstrap puller who like succeeds despite all odds. Um, And kind of this uh, focus on like the exceptional individual um, which then transfers responsibility for like the well-being of people from the you know the cultural communitarian container to the individual just being like really badass <laughs> essentially. Right. Um, and that feeds into or like feeds out of or just like isn't a loop with um, kind of the, I mean, even just like the mythology of the quote unquote chosen one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which then, you know, like in my talk, um, you know, I point to the concept of predestination um, as an example of this, like one example of this that has had, um, from my perception, significant influence. Um, and so this concept of predestination um, comes out of Protestant Calvinism, and was this and continues to be this idea that you can know whether you are chosen by God to uh, be saved, essentially, to be welcomed into heaven whenever you pass, uh, based on the evidence of your material circumstances, right? And so 
you know, and like something that you can then extrapolate from that is like if you're born into really positive material circumstances, that's evidence that you're chosen by mm-hmm. God to, you know, be amazing and to like ascend to heaven eventually. Mm-hmm. And so then if you're born into really destitute circumstances, that's proof that you are not chosen by God, right? Or if you're born into destitute circumstances and no matter how hard you work, you can't ever seem to catch a break, that's mm-hmm. also evidence that you're not chosen by God. Um, or if you're born into fortunate circumstances and you fall from those fortune fortunate circumstances, like, you know, all of your money is lost or, um, you know, your entire family estate goes up in flames or something like that, you know, it's, you know, sorry, not, not chosen. <laughs> um, right. And I feel like that, um, that concept, that structure can then be really useful whenever we're thinking in the present um, and how that idea has over time kind of historically become saturated into the secular culture of America. Like Calvinism ended up being really influential in the early days of the United States of America. Um, And you can even see it a bit in like Ben Franklin's writings and like the Mm -hmm. Protestant work ethic and things like that. And, um, Whenever so that people, is, oh, so. so so people may be taking for granted some concepts like that that have like um, leached into society, even mm-hmm. in a secular context, even if they're not like um, like hard carrying like Calvinists in like the early twenty first century. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, it's something that influenced like the drafting of early laws. It's something that um, would have been prominent in like the creation of civic charters and things like that. Um, And, you know, policies around how debtors are treated and, Mm. you know, so on and so forth. And so if that concept is just like kind of part of the zeitgeist, but isn't consciously known to be something that's about um, like whether or not one is deserving within a particular religious structure, then it's just like, okay, so my life sucks and it's my fault. (laughs) And this is something that I see then pervading things like the secret of just like, you're just not trying hard enough. That's why you don't have good things in your life. Like it's on you instead of having this perspective of like, well, systemically speaking, our nation or our communities don't prioritize caretaking these people in these ways for these reasons. Mm. Um, And it's not because these people just like are inherently bad people, it's actually because we have culturally not prioritized community caretaking. Sure. And and so that's an example of something they're taking for granted. And that's something in one of the first steps of radical self-care would be like acknowledging a layer of that that might exist in society or maybe even in your own psyche on some unconscious level um, that could leach into your astrology. So you mentioned mm-hmm. the secret, but even I could think of another example of astrologically like how people might interpret the Saturn return and how sometimes it's framed as like uh Lisa my partner Lisa Shime always complains because it's always bothered her about how it's often framed as if you do the work then you'll get the reward and that there's some people that go into their Saturn return or come out of it um you know better off or having learned something but sometimes people encounter major loss or tragedy or something mm-hmm. there and that framing sometimes accidentally puts it on them as their fault if something problematic or something tragic or negative happens to them when it might be completely outside of their control. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is, um, that even reminds me of like going back to episode 19 with Ben Dykes of um, how if you approach astrology, if you approach a natal chart as though it's only about an individual psyche and an individual's agency and an individual's like, you know, potential for evolution or whatever, if that's your only orientation and you're also mm-hmm. like are not aware um, or paying attention to the exterior circumstances that someone might experience, then you're cutting yourself off from being able to speak to an entire, like someone's entire experience in a way that is genuinely compassionate for that entire experience. And that's one of the advantages of um, traditional astrological orientations, which is acknowledging that the chart isn't only about you, but is also about circumstances surrounding you and people that you will interact with in some way. Um, and factors that as much as you might want to control them, you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those weird things. Like for me, this feels like one of the Saturn lessons, honestly, mm-hmm. which is that, um, accepting where you don't have control is one of the most liberating things you can do. Sure. Because it gives you that much more space to then pay attention to what you do have some influence over instead of, you know, slamming your head against the brick wall of circumstances beyond your control. Right. Definitely. Or focusing on um, lamenting that or focusing on feelings of like um, undeservedness, Mm -hmm. if, you know, surrounding things that you can't control if that's truly something that's out of your power due to much broader um, things than, than are focused on you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not about deservingness. It's about um, happenstance <laughs> to, a, to a large degree. What are some of, in terms of talking about systemic inequity, what are some of the other like classes or things that we're talking about in terms of that that might be the context of different people's lives? I guess we're talking about things like like gender, for example, or yeah, gender maybe- presentation, gender and gender presentation are both huge factors in this. Like I was actually, um, this is something that I've been thinking about um, recently, actually, in terms of. Um, you know, like I feel extremely lucky, extremely blessed um, that I so early in my astrological career was able to speak at Norwalk, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recognize that a factor in that could be my relative pretty privilege in that I am a light-skinned black person um, who does not have like intensely um, African-looking features. And within the, um, I don't know, within this like cultural container that we exist within, um, attractiveness is usually on a scale towards like a maximally pretty European looking person. Mm -hmm. And so on that spectrum, I am more conventionally attractive, so to speak, than someone who is um, like extremely dark skinned with extremely African looking features in terms of like mainstream perception of what is pretty. And so like, obviously that's not the only thing that has influenced um, like my, I don't know, my career growth, you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something that I recognize might be a factor within all of this. Right. So pretty privilege is a thing. Pretty privilege is real, especially for people who um, are perceived to be women. 
Sure. I mean, so, haven't they done like scientific studies on mm -hmm. that just in terms of saying that people respond differently to supposedly to people that are perceived as more attractive versus people that are not and that that creates a sort of conditioning in and of itself and that affects like many different levels of of things in society and people's experience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But then, and then your your additional point there is not just that, but also that even what what counts for like beauty in let's say just America um, has different like cultural layers and biases that are built into it as well. Yes. Yep. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And so that's one of the interesting things about a lot of these. Um, I don't know, I guess systemic influences is that they intersect, right? And that's right. one of the things that comes through with like intersectional theory, um, which originated in like legal documents, legal work done by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and if anyone who is listening is curious about this, uh, my colleague Bear River also spoke about intersectionality. So we're not going to go super deep into that because there's going to be an episode yeah, I'm talking to Bear, yeah. Bear now about doing an episode on okay. that, but we, we could still define it because it's certainly relevant right now. Yeah, so with intersectionality, the idea is that, um, like the original idea was that um, previously in legal code, it was kind of impossible to combine um, like a legal argument about being discriminated as a woman with a legal argument about being dis discriminated as an African-American person. Um and Kimberly Crenshaw argued that that <laughs> that doesn't work in practice. Like you, these things are not separatable, especially because there's a specific experience of um, discrimination that happens for Black women that is different than the discrimination experienced by Black men, and that is dis different than the experience of 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 discrimination of discrimination <laughs> by white women. Um, so since then, the term intersectionality has expanded to be um, something that acknowledges the ways that different um, identity, class, and other kinds of markers interact with one another in order to create someone's um, collection of experiences as a person in the world being perceived by other people in the world. Uh, does that feel like a good definition? Yeah, and I think Bear... Because again, that's why it was his talk as well that I was really impressed by, as well as yours at Norwalk that it came af out of them wanting to do episodes on. But he also described it as a person is not usually just subject to like one instance or one level of discrimination, but usually there's multiple overlapping like categories mm -hmm. that sort of can compound each other or at least be relevant at the same time rather than there just being like this one thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And that that then, you know, like I don't I haven't observed intersectionality being used in terms of then also privileges, but that's another thing that gets mixed into that whole soup as well. Mm -hmm. Um like like for example, um I was talking to somebody recently um who has been working on some writing stuff and I was working on some writing stuff and I was helping this person with some writing stuff. And recognizing that one of my privileges that I carry is like I grew up with an English teacher, like a college level English teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up reading. I started reading when I was like three. I went to a top tier university and had lots of um, academic level writing instruction in both English and French. <laughs> 
Um, and so that has given me a nimbleness with writing, um, and also a facility with communicating and doing certain kinds of application processes and like all of those kinds of things that someone who hasn't had that collection of experiences doesn't, doesn't have, right. Or like needs to learn in a different way. Mm. Um, so, I mean, and part of that is like my Mercury is ruled by Jupiter, (laughs) Right, at least that's one of the understandings that I have of my Mercury ruled by Jupiter. Um, sure. So you have Mercury, Mercury in Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. I have Mercury in Sagittarius um, and Jupiter in Cancer in okay, a day nice. chart. Jupiter is exalted. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, not everybody's Mercury's in Sagittarius work the ways that work in the way that mine do does. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Like I still have like word salad come out of my mouth as that example just now. Um, sure. But there's like a, there's a facility with Mercury things mm. that um, I can see in terms of both my lived experiences of certain kinds of privilege and that I can also then see to a certain degree in my chart. Yeah, I like, I like that. And that was something that really stuck with me from your talk was you explained the idea and the concept of like looking at and just starting to think about Instance of privilege and using that term privilege, which sometimes can be kind of um, triggering for people, or mm-hmm. sometimes people can think that it's means one thing, but just taking into account some of the different things that you take for granted that are benefits that you've had in your life, or or natural facilities, or things that were sometimes just outside of your control that worked in your favor, mm-hmm. and acknowledging those things can actually be really useful in, in understanding better your your own life story, or even looking at your life through the context of your your birth chart or what have you. Yeah, like one hundred percent, and like part of that too. Like whenever I do uh, client work, like one of the things that people often come to me with is trying to figure out what their strengths are, like what they are supposed to be doing in some way, mm-hmm. and frequently um, it will be. Like in the like, what I'll see in the chart are like talents and skills, or like natural proclivities that they don't even realize are special, right? Right, which is kind of another way of putting that. Um, like I think, like one useful way to think about privilege is it's it's not necessarily something that is like always good for you, or it means like your whole life is great because you have this like one specific kind of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it intersects with um, other forms of privilege as well as other forms of marginalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that your life isn't difficult because of that thing. Sure. You don't have like the cards stacked against you, at least in that one area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think having it put that way can be really helpful of then being like, okay, if the cards aren't stacked against me in this area, if I want to do the work of being positively influential in the world, then this is probably an area that I can lean into as, um, as a tool set for being a positive influence or like, you know, living out my birth chart promise, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, and it also expanded the scope of what privilege means. That it's not just something that sometimes it's it's placed in a in a purely, or at least people perceive it as being placed in a purely like racial context mm-hmm. or something like that. But it can also be things like you mentioned, um, like beauty or attractiveness. We've met, also mentioned wealth. Um, even coming from, I mean, we could go through basically all twelve of the houses and talk yeah. about different ways that a person might experience or be privileged in different areas of their life 
if that part of their chart, let's say hypothetically, is like well situated as an area where broadly speak, speaking, the cards might not be stacked against them, and it might not necessarily be due to something that they deliberately had to cultivate on their own, even if they did choose to at some some point. Yeah, I actually really love that idea. Um, like, do you want to do that really quickly? Yeah, I mean, we I'm could do like, it. I mean, because the first, quick. <laughs> so the first house. Let's say let's start with the first house is the the body as well as the mind. And in my book, one of the classical indicators I took from like Hellenistic astrology that they would mention occasionally was just like having Venus in the first house and for whatever reason appearing um, to be abnormally attractive, let's say, or or well proportioned or beautiful, like whatever you define beauty as. Um, different people perhaps having that if they have the first house like well placed for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then for the second house, that would bring us to those things like wealth, like like having abundant resources, like if um like the example that you gave of Jupiter well placed in the second, and not having difficulties with financial matters, which mm-hmm. not having difficulties like that can mean any number of things. It can mean like you know having a hundred million dollars in the bank account <laughs> or something. It can sure. also just mean um whenever you need money, it ha- it it appears when you need it. Right. Right. Um, you know, maybe you're not living high on the hog, but you are never completely destitute. Um, and I wanted to go back really quick to the first house because oh, one yeah. I don't want to skip that I could easily skip over, but um and I do, is ideas of like ableism, but because the, mm. the first house also has to do with physical the physical body and and sometimes if there there's problems connected to it in terms of the first house or, or challenging indications, there can be the opposite. There could be challenges in terms of one's physical body or physical mo- mo- mobility or physical health. If mm-hmm. that makes makes sense. Yeah. Do, should we do like a like a positive positive and, positive are we just and doing negative po- for pos- each? Positive first. Do you want to or how do you want to do it? Um. Maybe let's do them like both a positive and a negative for each house as we go around. So okay. that way people aren't like, wait, why are you talking about the first house again? I thought we already talked about the first house. Yeah. Um, okay. So this. So the first. Do you have anything else about the first, or any that come to mind um, for you, or is, or is that good? Oh, like one thing I think that might be sometimes relevant for the first house is your sense of safety as you move through the world. Mm. Right. Like if you feel strong in your physical presence and your physical mm-hmm. form, then, um, like as you move through the world, you might not have as much um, fear or apprehension. Um, Things of that nature, which is a, a privilege to be able to feel like you can just like go out and like be fine. Sure, yeah, definitely, and and that can be connected to some of those different categories, a bunch of different overlapping categories. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then, with the second house, we talked a little bit about um, like financial ease, financial mm-hmm. like just undifficulty, <laughs> sure. for lack of a better word. And so then the opposite would be financial difficulty, like um, you know. I even think about how many Americans have been experiencing bankruptcy due to medical bills, for example. Um, mm. And like, I don't have any like chart examples in my head that would necessitate a connection to the second house. Um, but I, you know, maybe like almost the opposite is like more the eighth house for that. But um, even just uh, not being able to. Um, ensure financial stability for oneself um like maybe needing to rely more on other people versus uh feeling like you can have your financial and other resource needs met um based on your own activity 
Right. That's a really good one. Um, I always had a, I had a client that this example always stuck with me because he grew up in a very poor family during the Great Depression in like the 1920s and, and 30s. And that experience always stuck with him throughout his life and always continued to inform his sort of mental state involving with like Saturn in the second house, I think in a night chart and just fear surrounding mm. material security as being a consistent um, issue throughout his life. Even once he was able to overcome that to some extent and become stable as an adult, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so third house. Um, if you have a well situated third house experience, like living in a really safe neighborhood, like a neighborhood that you feel really like comfortable in, having uh, positive relationships with your neighbors and positive relationships with any siblings or like sibling like people in your life. Mm -hmm. Versus the opposite of like living mm -hmm. in a, a difficult neighborhood or where you're subjected to like violence or let's say like profiling or other um, circumstantial issues that are sometimes out of your control in in terms of your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, fourth house, um, well situated, having positive relationships with your family of origin. Um, mm. or if you're adopted, like whatever your core family is in some way. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe also, um, not struggling to, uh, find and establish physical homes for yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's really good ones versus the opposite of, um, let's say like losing a parent or not having parents or having your parents be abusive or, um, yeah, or having difficult background stories because the fourth is also just your roots and your origins. And so maybe other extended um, problems in terms of that are areas where you encounter or experience struggles as a, as a result of who your parents were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, um, like even thinking about intense instability at home, um, however home looks throughout your life, like maybe consistent themes of instability. Right. And so, I mean, maybe that's an issue we should, or question we should talk about that's coming up for me, which is sometimes in the discussion with Ben, we frame this in terms of like uh, fortunate versus unfortunate or um, things like that. We're talking about it partially in the context of privilege, but is privilege always something that you're born with or can it be something that is temporary or can be just like an event or event oriented in some way? Like oh, I would I would say that it can definitely be like event oriented and transitory, right? Okay. So like for example, um, say you do have like a really good financial year, right? Maybe you don't have a super dignified second house, but it's also like not like like negatively situated either. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have a really good uh, second house experience, um, and then you have a really negative second house experience, like whenever you are in a position of like um, of financial abundance or material abundance, then you have the privilege of having financial and material abundance. But um, those are things that decay or can decay, can be lost. Mm -hmm. um, so in a lifetime, you know, even like those stories of people who win the lottery um, and are not given the or like are do not have access to the kind of financial counseling that would facilitate like long-term abundance with those winnings and then they mm. end up in bankruptcy right okay so it can be something that is temporary it's just something that offsets um 
you and how what your situation is relative to other people who may not have the same experience or the same level of of being not just fortunate because it's hard it's not necessarily i don't know if it's right to is it right to situate in terms of like fortunateness versus unfortunateness or um it's just something that that creates an imbalance in some way Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it creates and is a participant in some of the baked-in inequities, right? Okay. Um, like winning based the lottery, based on societal values, which themselves are shifting and not necessarily like permanent, but just relative to current society. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Um, okay, so fourth house, I think that was pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Fifth house, uh, children, like traditionally. Mm-hmm. The house of children. So, like a fortunate fifth house, um, or like a privileged fifth house, wouldn't just be children, and also like art. Like maybe, like if you have, um, like, uh, I don't know. Um, like say you have like an Aquarius fifth house with Venus and Aquarius, and Venus ruling the ascendant in a night chart, and then you know Venus is otherwise also very happy. Um, mm-hmm. And you're a super well-known artist, right? Like this is a direct example of something on Twitter. Whenever I like, I tweeted something, and someone demonstrated themselves, like presented themselves as an example of mm. having Venus in its joy in the fifth and ruling the the ascendant simultaneously. Yeah, or or maybe with a placement like that, even just maybe when you're in elementary school, you had a really great art teacher who mm-hmm. really enc- encouraged and helped to facilitate the growth of your artistic skills um, that then leads you later into pursuing a career and becoming a successful artist. But if you hadn't had that luck or that privilege of like having that that's important teacher who facilitated that for you, you wouldn't have otherwise been able to become as successful later on. Right. Yeah. Um, or um, like even an example, like maybe you're super creative, like this is this would be like kind of a this is less of a like a privilege thing, so maybe it's less relevant. Um, but I was just gonna say, like, being an excellent artist, but not being discovered until after you've passed. Okay. Um, right? Yeah. I mean, so that's important because I do want to be able to distinguish between, if we can, like, what is privilege versus what is not privilege. So I understand the distinction yeah. between those two categories. So you're saying that's not a great case because even if well i mean i mean it, it would be an inherent privilege if they had an inherent skill or aptitude with art in of itself are you saying that that counts as a privilege even if <sighs> even if it's not something they're able to take advantage of fully in their lifetime yeah that's such an interesting question because then you know we get at the question of like um like when is the concept of privilege most relevant and like when is it when is it luck versus when is it privilege? And I yeah. feel like in this conversation, like one of the things about like socio-political privilege is mm. that it confers ben- like social benefits to you as you move through the world. Okay. So in so- some so- way, like as you it- operate within the world. So privilege is primarily socio-political in its origins. Because we never defined mm-hmm. completely what classes of things we we're talking about um, in terms yeah. of that. So, what are different types of privileges, or what are the different classes of privilege that people have? Yeah, um, I mean, there's like very many, right? So, there's um, like uh, like we've touched like there. I, I think like hmm, hold on, 
there's visual privilege. So like as you move through the world, how you are perceived okay. and whether your, um, your pers- like your presentation is something that confers upon you ease of movement or dis-ease of movement. Right. Okay. So this would this would encapsulate things like, um, you know, certain manifestations of white privilege, uh, certain manifestations of pretty privilege, um, certain manifestations of gender presentation privilege, um, even to a large degree, uh, certain manifestations of wealth presentation privilege. Right. Because like you can see you can tell when somebody is wearing expensive clothes versus when they are wearing, you know, like rags, <laughs> like that's a mm-hmm. very visual component. So I think there's, there's like visual, there's visual privilege. Um, then there is, um, like class, class privilege, um, which can include visual privilege, but goes beyond it. Or like, I don't know, isn't a, like a, in exact, like a non-exact Venn diagram maybe, Mm -hmm. um, with visual privilege. So class privilege would be around the access that you have to, um, material resources and the things that only material resources can provide you with. Um, so this would also include educational privilege, um, right. you know, property, um, like certain kinds of neighborhood safety, um, like being able to, like, I don't know, bribe someone to not get you in trouble about something, mm. those sorts of things. Sure. Um, Class, or that's another that could even apply to maybe like the legal system of mm-hmm. people being able to get off for certain types of crimes or not go to jail due to being able to afford or having access to like expensive lawyers versus mm-hmm. somebody in a lower socioeconomic um, level not being able to afford that and therefore getting a much harsher sentence or what have you than you would you would get otherwise. Yes. Yeah. Um, or like being detained indefinitely instead of being able to like live your life while your court date is coming up. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So visual privilege, class privilege. Um, I'm trying to think like what other categories, cause I feel like those are maybe, um, I mean, then there's also cultural privilege. Cultural privilege, I think, counts too, because like there's this phrase called cultural hegemony, um, which Mm -hmm. is this idea that um, like a particular cultural orientation is the default, and Mm -hmm. if you are of the default, you don't really consider that you're of the default because that cultural orientation just is the thing that people operate within. and it can then be really uncomfortable whenever you're put in a position that questions uh, your culture or is like goes against your cultural default. Um, but within that, we could even think about like um, like uh, ethnicity, immigration, um, religion, spirituality, um, other sorts of cultural norms, um, mm. and whether those cultural norms are broadly considered to be norms or if it's a subset of society and your cultural norms within that subset are um, noticeable, like they stand out in some kind of way within broader society. Um, Okay. 
So one example of this that I can think of um, is like the ongoing issue in France of whether or not Muslim women are allowed to wear hijab or face coverings that are relevant for their faith. Mm. Um, And with coronavirus, like face coverings for coronavirus have been allowed, but not the religious face coverings that um, Muslim women would like to be wearing within that Mm. context. And so like within the cultural hegemony of France, face coverings for the specific reason of the subculture of Muslim women is not allowed, but face coverings that are beneficial for the cultural hegemony. So like the, the bodily safety of the French population at large are okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and in enumerating all of these, I'm starting to then, I think it's then becoming clear. We can take it back to the original point of why the recognition of all of these multiple levels is important in terms of self-care because you have to be able to identify the, I think you said like the identity matrix is what mm-hmm. you called it um, in your lecture that you're operating within in order to truly um, understand um, not just your your birth chart and to be able to contextualize it, but also to be able to identify what are the things that you're taking for granted in your life and mm-hmm. what are the things that you don't have to to just take for granted or what are the things that maybe you want to remove from the list of things that you're taking for granted or try to change in some way, not just in yourself, but also in terms of society in general. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, for example, even thinking about um uh like going back to like the French example, um where like the the wearing of certain kinds of Muslim like head heads headgear of some kind, mm-hmm. right? Like whether it be a headscarf or a face covering of some kind, um, like that being um, like a religious indicator that is disallowed. But say wearing um, wearing. <laughs> a necklace that indicates your uh, religious affiliation or even like nuns (laughs) in France being able to wear their, um, what is that? What is the head covering for nuns called their? um, Oh yeah. I know what you mean. It's like a, it's not a cloak, but it's, it's like a sort of like a cloak or something. Yeah. I'm Uh, totally spacing on the word right now. Um, But you know, like that kind of head covering is okay. Because that it like Christianity is closer to the broader French cultural hegemony than Muslim women also wearing some kind of covering. Sure, and it's and and what is I forget even because I'm not fully familiar with the issue, but the French at least political stance is that they they think. Maybe I shouldn't even attempt to articulate what. what yeah. So my my okay. understanding of it is like it's both an assimilationist thing where it's like we want all French people to be French, mm-hmm. um, and a misperception that um, women covering themselves is the same as women being oppressed. Um, right. That um, any Muslim woman woman who is choosing to wear. Um, like hijab or any other kind of um, religiously based covering is doing so because they are being smashed by patriarchy Mm -hmm. instead of doing so because of their own personal convictions and beliefs around their faith. Um, 
And so it's like an imposition of a particular kind of idea of what it means to be a liberated woman um, Mm -hmm. versus allowing women to just make choices for themselves. Sure. Yeah. Um, So that's a really good example then of like different cultural of cultural ones like um, coming into conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also like, you know, which, which variants of the same activity are allowed based on cultural assumptions. Sure. Right. Okay. Um, So this sort of takes us a little bit back to, and what we're already basically getting into, but the, the underlying point is that the the context of the chart matters, and that was like one of your main things that you were really pointing out in the lecture. And um, you referred to when we were preparing for this about like Ptolemy, this not being like a new thing. It's not like this is a new idea, but in fact, back in the second century, Ptolemy basically said the same thing that the context of the chart matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and so. You know, even thinking like if we're going to go back to like the houses discussion mm-hmm. with, um, you know, the fifth house, culturally speaking, if one of the cultural, um, like I don't know, uh, priorities, I guess, is having lots of children, then right. within that cultural context, a blessed fifth house or like a fortunate fifth house would be one that is like very fertile and like indicates high chances of producing lots of children and like healthy children and happy children mm-hmm. that, you know, go on to like, you know, continue your line unendingly, right? right. Um, and then an, a misfortunate or like an unfortunate fifth house would be one that points towards barrenness or infertility mm-hmm. um, instead of the production of children. Um, but in a cultural context that prioritizes creativity or artistry or things like that more so, or in equal measure to the, um, like the reproductive qualities of the fifth house, um, Mm. or a culture that, um, a cultural context that, um, is a really big fan of like hedonism and pleasure (laughs) and like other Venusian things, then, that would be the thing that would be the um, the beneficial impact of a well situated fifth house, right? Um, okay. So, like, so good and bad. Part of it then is that fortunate versus unfortunate, or even privilege versus not having privilege, is very culturally relative, mm-hmm. and it brings back a really important thing about not just the context of the chart, but all astrology being culturally relative in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, where I think it's like Rick Tarnas is the most recent like reference I have for this of just, you know, astrology is archetypally accurate, mm-hmm. but not necessarily like down to like the most detailed, like hard-lined accurate. Um, mm-hmm. because that's one of the gifts of astrology. It's like you know, my chart, if I was existing in like 1600s Italy, would have a different experience than the chart that I have existing in 2020 in America. Right. Right. Yeah, so, that makes sense. And the things available to you based on mm-hmm. your own socioeconomic status and different factors of class and, and gender and, and, and race and everything else or appearance mm-hmm. are also going to be other like layers that further, um, Put you in uh, not in a corner, but at least will specify the range of possible manifestations uh, to to some extent. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Exactly. So, I mean, I just had like another idea about like the fifth house and privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe you have a fifth house that to a certain degree indicates um, like biological barrenness, right? But there's something happening maybe with your seventh house and your second house that indicates the um, both the resources and the capacity to do something like um, IVF treatments mm-hmm. or adopting, like being able to su- successfully adopt or um, like have access to surrogacy um, right. as a method of bringing a child into your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I don't know, just like thinking about how the houses might interact with each other in terms of indicating um, privilege or lack thereof around a particular house topic. Right. As well as um, challenges a person mm-hmm. might face that might be indicated in the chart, but also sometimes the presence of mitigations can indicate the ability to overcome challenges or difficulties or setbacks that, that mm-hmm. might you might start with, but might be you might be able to get through in, in some way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then even going to the sixth house, mm-hmm. right? We're like a super well situated sixth house um, can point to just like not having very many problems around sixth house topics uh, potentially. But like I'm even actually being reminded of a chart example that Kira Sutherland used in one of her Norwak talks mm-hmm. of an individual who had Gemini in the sixth and Mars in the sixth and exercised constantly, like super and like extremely fit, like was using their Mars to be active, like physically active, Mm -hmm. but experienced something that meant they couldn't be physically active, um, and then had a manic episode because their usual Mars outlet was removed from them for a time. Mm. Um, So that would be, you know, it's like the privilege of um, being physically able to engage with Mars through health generating activity mm-hmm. versus the lack of privilege, like the lack of mobility that then leads to a negative manifestation of Mars in the sixth. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, with mm-hmm. the sixth primarily being about um, physical health or physical illness, and sometimes physical health um, or or illness can be something that can take away or remove your your ability to operate um, like other people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, seventh house and just relationships or partnerships or mm-hmm. relating to other people in one-on-one relationships in general. Mm-hmm. So um, being charming is a privilege, mm. right? Um, it's not the same as pretty privilege, but to be able to be in relationship with people in a way that feels good and is positive and generative and supportive mm-hmm. um, versus um, you know, having a a more knit, like a less positive situation in your seventh house and having a lot of challenges connecting with other people. And like this gets at something that's like, it's kind of beyond systemic to a certain degree because humans Mm -hmm. are social creatures and we actually really do need to be in contact with other people for our overall wellness. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I can imagine that certain kinds of 
social anxiety in different sociocultural contexts um, will have different impacts, right? So maybe you're a really shy person and you have a blessed seventh house, which means that you find friends who can see you where you're at and who like hold a positive container for you and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're a really shy person and um, something is happening in your seventh house that just leads to further and further isolation. Um, you know, even just thinking about the, um, I mean, this is kind of dark, but it like leads us into the eighth house to a certain degree, which is just the sensation of isolation, um, and lack of hope and like lack of connection with other people contributing to, um, when people decide to take their own life. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, with the seventh house, even even if things are changing, but if you took it back like a few decades, would um, like if you were um, in like a same sex relationship or that was your or- orientation, would that be like an instance of being um, of versus if somebody is like a heterosexual and having that privilege versus? Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, would that be an accurate instance of what and we could think about with respect to the seventh house? Yeah, absolutely. Like straight privilege or heteronormative right. privilege mm-hmm. um, versus like non heteronormative relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Even thinking about, um, you know, if we're continuing to participate in like bringing in like the cultural context of these, um, like being a single working woman in the 1920s. Versus right. being a single working woman in the 2020s, like the, there's a vast difference in terms of how you're perceived by society and what kinds of um, opportunities are even presented to you. Um, so yeah, or or being a like there was like a phrase for it in like the 1920s or 30s, like an unmarried bachelor as like a keyword. Um, you know, if a if a man wasn't straight and they were past a certain mm. age and weren't and weren't mm-hmm. married, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so those are good instances. And then, um, so the eighth house, you you'd already mentioned one there. Did you mention the opposite or what? Like a instance of privilege would actually be. Um. So for the eighth house, one of the things that I've observed in my client work with some folks is, um having access to resources through inheritance, Mm. um, especially. Um, And not everybody gets an inheritance when their parents pass on because not everybody's family has the the privilege, basically, to Mm. accumulate wealth in such a way that it can then be dispersed to their offspring once they pass. Um, So that would be- The passing on of generational wealth. Yeah, exactly. That would be the the main privilege that I would point or that I would see in something like the eighth house. And then the passing on of debt or just like the accumulation of debt in order to um, survive <laughs> uh, would be like a negative, like a less less savory, like an anti-privilege, I guess. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really a good one. Um, I can definitely think of some instances of that. Uh, yeah. Um, so the ninth house is like traditionally education and foreign travel and interaction with foreign places and things, mm-hmm. as well as religion. 
religion, right? yeah. religion and faith. And so um, in terms of privilege, like culturally being of the uh, the predominant religion, um, the, I would consider that to be a certain kind of privilege versus um, being of a faith that is explicitly uh, oppressed in a given context. Um for a given time period, um, yeah, and then like educate- I'm, I'm imagining a scenario where somebody is living in some small, let's say, small rural town where it's like the predominantly Christian, and like you move in from out of town, and your family is like Muslim or something like that. Yeah, that would be like like an instant instance of that. Yeah, or even um, you know, like thinking about um, like paganism, like different mm-hmm. forms of paganisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not that's accepted or you're just, you know, dismissed as a devil worshiper or something like that, which can be really dangerous for people. Yeah, or, or honestly, even astrology sometimes, because mm-hmm. I've seen people that become astrologers struggle with that if their family is either, let's say, highly religious, and so that puts them on the outs with their family, or um, even the opposite end of the spectrum, if their family is a background of, like, let's say, scientists or something, and suddenly they're an astrologer um, putting mm-hmm. them on the, on the outs in terms of that. Yeah, like highly uh, highly uh, atheist or like the the specific kind of like uh, materialist atheist, um, I think can sometimes uh, react very negatively to something like astrology. Right. Or even conversely, and then to flip that around, um, let's say somebody that is an atheist but is practicing within the context of predominantly mm-hmm. religious society, and and that's something put that puts them on the the outs of not the outs, but the the in the minority of the popular. Sure, yeah, right. potential disadvantage. Um, and then yeah, obviously education is a huge thing. Um, mm-hmm. and the way that higher education has been structured, at least in like I know, in, at least in France and in the United States, which are really the only places that I've had any kind of interaction with the higher education system, like mm. they're systems that have, um, by and large, calcified class differences, um, which is why it can feel so important for like you know people who are the first in their family to go to college. Like it's a huge thing because it's like the it's considered a stepping stone into. Um, a a class that is above the class of their parents or their family. Um, yeah, and an opportunity to to get outside of that and to transcend it or to move beyond that mm-hmm. class in some way through education. Yeah, which doesn't always work out, especially if there's a massive accumulation of debt along the way, right? Yeah, it's eighth ninth relationship. Right. Good point. And that's where you can connect some of these houses as you did earlier through the rulers of the houses, which mm-hmm. is really important since that was actually the original context of the discussion with Ben in episode 19 was I just finished doing this really long like eight-hour lecture on the rulers of the houses for my Hellenistic course, which ended up being most of the examples I used in that chapter of my book. But it was just becoming so evident to me because you could see how different parts of a person's life were connected when you paid attention to the rulers of the houses. And that was always something that was missing because it's not usually introduced in most like late twentieth century astrology books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, tenth house. I mean, having having the right kinds of networks for your career to move forward, especially if you are someone with the midheaven that is placed in the tenth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being the right kind of visible. Um, to the right kinds of people and having the right kind of appearance within career in order to 
further whatever your work in the world might be. Right, definitely. Um, so when we were preparing for this, I remember you were asking me, and we talked about maybe discussing some of our own instances of privilege, and that was one of the things I thought about because I have the degree of the midheaven. Um, it's in the eleventh whole sign house, but it's conjunct Venus, uh, and I've definitely gotten lucky at different points, not just educationally and being able to go to some place like Kepler College, um, but also different. Um, having different mentorship opportunities, like meeting Demetra George and having mm -hmm. her become my mentor, and then getting lucky through that in being invited to go to Project Hindsight and other things that have helped me along the way in terms of my different career goals and aspirations as an astrologer. And that's something I've been reflecting on over the past couple of weeks. Just would I have had some of the same opportunities if I had different um, uh, backgrounds in terms of my my race or gender or um, Sexual orientation or socioeconomic status or other things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And that actually is a good segue right into. I mean, I guess we should say a negative thing about the tenth, or like a like an uh, anti-privilege about the tenth, um, mm -hmm. which like potentially. Um, um, trying to think like problems with authority problems with bosses like being some kind of like being perceived as or actually being um, like. Uh, a problem, I guess, in terms of like operating with um, other people, um, like problems with your reputation, right? Mm -hmm. Which again, you know, even thinking back into history of just like to be a single working woman uh, at certain time periods, sometimes the assumption is that you are a sex worker and mm -hmm. that could really diminish your opportunities in your professional field of choice. Um, or if it came out that you were a homosexual man, like that could, you know, you could end up divorced and like unemployable and like blacklisted essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. Um, but segging into the 11th where your MC is conjunct the conjunct Venus, mm -hmm. um, you know, having friends, <laughs> um, right. you know, like having supportive community around you, um, you know, with your MC there that clearly feeds into your, um, your work, like your most visible work in the world. Um, but even if you're, even for people whose MC isn't there to have like a well, uh, situated 11th house, um, can really facilitate all of the things that are fed by positive community interaction. Mm, right. right. Yeah. And and when I was in my early 20s and my perfections were going through there and all that stuff was getting activated, I was invited to join the board of like the Association for Young Astrologers very early because I was complaining that they weren't doing a very good job. And so they said, well, why don't you just, why don't then, then come aboard. They basically uh -huh. turned turn it around on me and said, "We'll join the board." And then I eventually became president in my early twenties. And then, as a result of that, the National Council for Geocosmic Research reached out and asked if I would join their board and like become the research director for a few years. So that was instances of me having um, luck or getting advantages through. 11th house slash 10th house topics while some of those things were getting activated due to positive mm -hmm. place placements that were reflected in my birth chart. Yeah. Yeah. And then the opposite, uh, struggling, like maybe not even having aspirations, 
right? Like I think for people who are very oriented towards um, achieving something, uh, mm-hmm. leaving a legacy of some kind, having a positive influence, like um, having some level of uh, positive notoriety, it can mm-hmm. be really easy to forget that there are people that literally just like don't have aspirations for whatever reason. Like maybe they were never, like maybe um, due to other circumstances, um, through like witnessing or being told that their dreams were invalid or their dreams couldn't couldn't happen, they mm-hmm. just give up on achieving something, um, which to me is like a very like sad 11th house kind of situation. Um, like even if we were to go back to the fifth house example that like kind of sent us on like a loop-de-loop, um, you know, so say someone has like, a you know, Venus and her joy in the fifth, um, but, you know, in, in antithesis or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and in combination with that, maybe it's a day chart and they have Mars in the 11th and maybe a Mars-Saturn conjunction in the 11th. Um, and early in life, someone tells them like, you know, there's no way you're ever going to be an artist. You right. just, it's impossible. And so right. then that person goes their whole life, like just never letting themselves aspire to, uh, their creative potential. So just focusing on that that eleventh house core signification of of one's hopes and wishes and aspirations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, and also to go back to the tenth house, but also carries over to the eleventh. But just I wanted to use the specific keyword that we hadn't used, but just experiencing discrimination when it comes mm-hmm. to your career and that being yeah. actually something that holds you back or sets you back. And I have had clients. Who had that? Who who were didn't get promotions or didn't move up as fast as they could have through their career, or even to speak to your eleventh house topics about hopes and aspirations were blocked from some of the things that they wanted to achieve in their life as a result of of discrimination. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like the like the concept of the glass ceiling, mm-hmm. right? Of being able to see that there is more to achieve but being prevented from breaking through um, by structures and uh, ways of thinking that are beyond your personal control. Um, mm-hmm. And that often, like because it's glass, like one of the things about the glass ceiling is like it's invisible to the people that have transcended it, right? Like they don't see that it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can be true in so many ways, right? It can be true for gender, it can be true for race, it can be true for um sexual orientation. It can be true for even like class and ability. Like all of these different things can be factors in people dismissing your uh, worthiness, (laughs) right? Go back to worthiness, like dismissing your worthiness of advancing within a particular field. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, And then finally, and also tangibly 11th can just be like friends and sometimes Mm -hmm. like having friends or group structures that are supportive of you versus maybe not having that or being left out of groups or support structures that would otherwise support you and support your hopes and aspirations. Yeah. Nobody nobody achieves their dreams on uh solo effort alone. There's there's some combination of factors that are beyond your own personal influence that contribute to those things. So not having those things is a huge, huge thing. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why I was involved in Aya early on because that was a important thing um, in the community at the time where there weren't like support structures. When I came into the community for like young, younger astrologers and helping them get connected to 
the established older astrological mm-hmm. community um and and building that and as a somewhat of a segue I wanted to mention that because then that's something in terms of other organizations and groups that that would be useful and help balance things out like that where I played that role kind of like 10 or 15 years ago and continu- continues to but in your talk and also in Bear Rivers talk you had mentioned working on an organization mm-hmm. um that you guys are still working on behind the scenes? Yeah. So that's with Bear River, um, Shakira Taburn, myself, um, Aaron Tech Shipley is now participating in some of the foundation creation, like the foundation laying, I guess would be a better way of putting that. But it's uh, MICA, the Metaphysical Intersectional Collective of Astrologers. Um, and it's really focused on, um, like, especially like the intersectional component of like, what does it mean to support the astrological community in um, bringing the, like, not just, like, quote-unquote diversity and inclusion, but, like, actual um, community building around the multifaceted nature of um, people who love astrology. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know how much I can really say, but I know like one of one of our big goals is like education. So mm-hmm. education for um, especially people who are wanting their astrological practices to be um, more inclusive and more aware of the uh, factors outside of the astrological consult setting that are impacting their clients um, or their students um, or both, depending on what your role in astrology is. Um, and then access. So, um, you know, we would like to get like scholarships going of various kinds, um, you know, for going to conferences, for education, for, um, people getting readings even, right? Like understanding that actually getting consultations, like receiving, being on the receiving end of consultations is a huge part of astrological education, um, is like right. sitting with you, a professional. <laughs> you, and you said that at one point, that was an eye-opening thing for me, but you, you pointed out that like astrological insights and knowledge are, are privilege or can be a privilege mm-hmm. in and of itself, yeah. especially due to like the expense of, of getting an astrological consultation and sometimes, or even getting a consultation with the best astrologers can sometimes be outside of what a person can afford. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, um, you know, there's there's that factor. There's also the privilege of even having a birth time, um, which I think a lot of people don't recognize as a privilege. Like if you are adopted or you were born in a context where there wasn't that kind of record keeping, um, Mm -hmm. you know, even rectification can't (laughs) can't fix everything. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean those those being like kind of the two main things when it comes to. Uh, accessing it, but also having the time, sure, like having the internet, um, consistent internet, right, and like a safe space in which to engage with astrology. Like if you know, going back to um, like the ninth house question, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what if the cultural situation for you is completely hostile to your astrological studies? And you're putting yourself at some kind of risk to engage with pursuing astrology. Like that's right. not my situation, and I recognize that as a privilege. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, that's really yeah. good. Um, so, into in terms of uh, Micah, you guys don't have a website yet, but you do mm-hmm. have an in- Instagram page. So, I just wanted to share that, which is just M I C A Astrologers. 
So Instagram.com slash M-I-C-A astrologers. And that might be a good, if people have Instagram, to follow that just mm-hmm. so when, when you guys do get the organization up and running, they can start getting uh, notifications. Yeah. Um, and we are we are really grinding on trying to put things out now. So <laughs> awesome. like after good. Norwak. So yeah. good. All right. Um, I think that brings us finally to the, the 12th house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the 12th house, like this is actually one of my favorite houses to engage with because I have things there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have dominant things there. Like I have uh, sun, moon, and mercury all in the 12th um, whole sign house. Um, but for me, like a privilege there is like the facility, right? Like the um, facility and willingness to engage with 12th house topics, um, which is really challenging for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, And to be able to do that engagement um, requires a lot of things that um, not everyone has access to, like uh, willingness, first of all, um I don't even know what to call it. Um, like the twelfth house is always hard to put words to. Um it's not exactly resiliency, but like uh, what is the word that I want? Fortitude, maybe? Like there's mm-hmm. a there's a kind of um like I, I want to be careful about it not like about not trying to phrase this in terms of um like spiritual evolution language because that's okay. not really what it is um sure. but like it's it's kind of like tenacity like the tenacity to be able to engage with some of the things that exist in the 12th house um which you know can be a lot of shame it can be a lot of pain it can be a lot of um like sense the sensation of isolation the sensation of being very liminal um you know, for certain people, this also looks like literally being some level of, um, uh, I don't know, put away, so to speak. So like time spent in um, psychological hospitals, um, time or psychiatric hospitals, excuse me, um, time spent in jail, time spent in, uh, you know, ashrams or monasteries or on solo retreat of some kind. And so that actually could be one of the dividing lines between like a privileged experience of the 12th house and a non-privileged experience of the 12th house. Privilege looks like being able to choose to go on a meditation retreat. Non-privilege right. looks like being pulled into incarceration. Um, right. Or being like falsely incarcerated or not having the ability to um, hire a lawyer and therefore mm-hmm. getting put away for 30 years on false charges yeah. or or something like that. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, so there's, you know, again, both like the external like the 12th house is like so murky, but you know, those those sure. external things of just like where are you physically located? But then mm-hmm. also the internal experiences of like can you can you withstand being face to face with some of those deep psychological or spiritual um I don't know, contents for lack of a better word. Um Yeah. Like do you have the support for that? Do you have have you been um have you found the right resources to guide you well? Um, can you safely engage with those things without um, you know, maybe falling into a psychiatric break of some kind? Yeah, that's a really good point. Or to think of the other side of my analogy, like the person that 
goes to jail, let's say, but then teaches themselves um, and learns like law and becomes a lawyer, and then mm-hmm. successfully is able to free themselves and then go on to, to fight for others in similar circumstances in the future. Mm-hmm. Obviously, those are those are very rare instances, but sometimes things like that happen, and just what you would expect to see in a birth chart in instances like that versus ones where the opposite happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. All right, so I think that was a pretty good um, trip through the twelve houses, and obviously there was a lot that we could have gone into to get into more detail in that. But um, I think maybe this brings us around or back full circle, since we've now come back to the first house appropriately, to how how this is tied into the idea of self care, mm-hmm. the identification of of these things, and what you can do with that information once you've identified maybe areas of privilege in your own life. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's in part identifying areas of privilege, but also in part identifying areas of relative mar- marginalization, um, mm. while simultaneously kind of recognizing the differences of experiences that people have throughout their lives. Mm. Um, and so, you know, one one thing that I encourage people to do, and we kind of touched on this earlier. Um, is to look at um, what you understand your privileges to be and your marginalizations to be, mm-hmm. and to do the work um, to kind of eradicate any sense of deservingness or undeservingness that you mm-hmm. have around those things. Um, like if I could just like kind of pluck the concepts of deservingness and undeservingness out of people's heads, I totally would because sure. it really gets in the way of. Um, self-compassion as well as compassion for other people. Um, Mm. You know, like I go into this in my talk a little bit more explicitly, but, you know, if if you believe that people deserve their lived circumstances, then how kind are you to people who have less than you have, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, And How how much empathy or true understanding of their situation mm -hmm. do you have? Yeah, and how much compassion do you have for their situation? How much... How much um, do you understand your capacity to potentially positively impact their circumstances uh, mm. in some way? But um, so, yeah, that would be the first thing is just like, you know, like look at what is in front of you um, and do what you can to remove deservingness and undeservingness, which is way easier said than done. <laughs> um, sure. So that's like kind of a an addendum, which is like whenever you engage with this work, as much as you can, be kind with yourself through it. Um, cause- yeah, because you you point out in your talk that this isn't easy work. Like identifying mm-hmm. these things is not easy. It can actually be very very difficult for yourself. Yeah, it can be really hard, and it can be hard for a couple of reasons. It can be hard because you know, like we don't see air, for example, but we're all surrounded by air, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know, we can perceive air through things like like the movements of air. Uh, through adding something to it, like adding particulates to it, like incense, we can see we can see air currents more if we have some smoke involved. Right. So, um, you know, muddying your self concept is part of the part of the process, and that can feel really destabilizing. Of just like I've always believed I'm a really good person, but here's all this evidence that I am, 
you know, complicit or participating in things that harm people. <laughs> mm. Like that's that's hard. It is it is really hard. And also it's just part of the work. Like that's that's my Saturn jumping out of just being like, sorry, it's hard. You just have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, and that's something I've been really cognizant of and seen really vividly over the past couple of weeks is the disconnect where people think um, for example, that if they they don't actively have not done things that they consider to be racist or that they are not racist themselves, that they don't realize that they're still operating in a framework where systemic racism like exists, and mm-hmm. their lack of acknowledgement or realization of that is itself like sort of our participatory is participating in that in some way to some low extent, even if they themselves are not consciously what you might consider to be a racist person or, or what have you. Right. And that actually, um, I was talking about this with a friend recently of just like, there's a difference between racism and white, white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the key differences is like on an individual level, if you grow up inside of a racist society, you are some level of racist. It just is like I'm racist in ways that um, I'm st- like I am constantly sifting through. Because um, you're taking but- for gra- granted things that are based on systemic, like long ago racial premises that you don't even fully realize in some instances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I benefit from racism in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. Like I also am harmed by racism in a lot of ways, um, but I'm not a white supremacist, right? Being a racist or being racist and being white supremacist are kind of two different things. As I've uh, like, at least in the way that I approach it, like being explicitly white supremacist is the violent, like actively violent form. Um, but racism is can be very subtle and insidious, um, and very, very, very difficult to pull all the way out. Um, so yeah, so just like, you know, going back is just like being tenacious, having perseverance, um, Mm. and having kindness and compassion for yourself through the process of, uh, working through any of these things, like any of the privileges, any of the marginalizations, uh, the deservingness question, the worthiness question, um, and, you know, kind of on the flip side of that, um, you know, there's the pulling stuff out, but there's also the growing the things that you want. And like, that's the more enjoyable part to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still work, but, you know, say you are like actively eradicating classism from how you work and operate in the world. Um, and then, you know, part of that process is, uh, like building better structures for people to, or like contributing to uh, organizations that are already doing this work of, you know, building better access to necessary resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a lot more like, yeah, I'm doing something that is benefiting more than myself. <laughs> um, sure. And, you know, not doing it because it's proof that you're good, but doing it because you want good things for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Not just it's not just a performance to prove that you're good because if you're still questioning that, then that's still something that you need to work on in terms mm-hmm. of the deservedness, undeservedness level. Yes, exactly. And like again, these things, you know, 
it's not like you're just done with it forever. It's like mm. maybe you figure it out in one area and you process it, you digest it out. It's no longer like the strong influence in this one area of your life. And then in a year or a week or a month or something, something else crops up where you're like, oh, here's another area of life where my sense of worthiness could use some help. And where my, you know, and sometimes that can be triggered by perceiving, like watching ourselves judge someone else for something like a quality that we also have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. But, you know, that's getting like into like the fine tooth combs question or like component of this work, but it's, you know, it's an ongoing process. Um, and I think, you know, so on my website, I have um, two, like the two PDFs that I created for my Norwak talk, they're available for free. Um, but one of them is um, exercises. Um to engage with this practice. Um, and I really wanted to focus on um, helping people grow parts of their brain that aren't the parts of our brain that really like to cling to negative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that includes like making really, really wildly positive delineations about your own chart. Um, because when it comes back, you know, shrinking this back to the self care component. Um, one of the things that the chart can show us is the ways that we're like incredible, <laughs> um, in some way, shape or form. Um, but it can be really easy to just cling to the things in our chart that prove that, you know, we suck. Um, so deliberately practicing, especially with another astrologically literate person, um, you know, creating like wildly positive delineations can be a really fun brain exercise, um, that helps, create kind of like a positive fortitude almost mm-hmm. um which then helps you keep doing the harder work of like seeing the things that are maybe less savory about yourself or your place in the world yeah that's great so that brings it all the way back to and i think finally brings it full circle in terms of the topic and why you call it radical self-care because you have to get to the underlying roots of everything and and in some instances like dig them up in order to fully identify the things that you're taking for granted in your life that are both good and bad, um, mm-hmm. but ultimately the point is is that you can use astrology as a form of self care, which is not just like physical, but also mental and, and emotional and spiritual in a very deep and profound way. And that's ultimately what you're going for here. And and you have some exercise sheets on your website, some PDFs for people to start taking some of those steps. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, so, what's your website again? So my website is damashena.com, and that is spelled D-D-A-M-A-S-C-E-N-A-A. You can also go to dianaroseharper.com, <laughs> which okay. is much easier to spell. Um, but yeah, if you go to downloads, um, you will see I have three different tiers for the video recording of my talk. Um, I like to provide sliding scale where and when I can. And then I have two $0 PDFs. One is a list of resources and one is a list of exercises um, that you can do as part of this part of this work. Um, and for those that might be curious, um, I am tithing 50% of the proceeds of the sales of my talk to Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so I'll put a link to that for those listening to the audio version of this um, in the description page for this episode, both below the YouTube video as well as on the astrologypodcast.com website. Um, 
yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else. Of course, you'll be launching the organization in the future. Mm-hmm. You're going to be giving more talks or possibly other workshops related to this. Or how do you see yourself expanding on this work in the future? Yeah. Um, well, again, like this is a talk that I've done a couple of different variations of already. I'm going to be doing one for um, like a small school school district in Wisconsin later this month, and I'm really excited about that. Nice. Um, I am going so like I have a zine that goes along with a workshop. It's tarot for radical self care. So if there's anybody here who's into tarot, um, the zine like the physical zine is currently sold out, but I'm hoping to acquire a printer um, so I can print them here at home. Um, as well as make a digital version of that soon. Um, And people have been asking me to teach the tarot version online as well. So um, at some point, that will be something that exists um, in the world as well. Um, But yeah, otherwise, at this point, I'm kind of just like working through my current stack of things. Um, Sure. But yeah, I'm really excited to have this out in the world, um, and I'm really excited to see how it supports people um, ongoingly. Like I was, it uh, it gave me a lot of happiness whenever you messaged me and mentioned that my talk helped you to kind of perceive privilege as one of the things that can be like understood within that matrix of people not recognizing certain things about their life, even though it's like clearly delineated in the chart. Um, because, you know, there's like, that's just one example of things that have kind of opened up for people, um, Mm -hmm. after experiencing this work. And that is, I don't know, I'd like, I find it incredible. Like, I feel like, um, I, yeah, I'm just really excited to continue to hear about people's engagement with it because, uh, you know, it's not about me. It's about like seeing how people are, uh, engaging and working through and feeling encouraged in doing this too. Cause it's important. It's important always. It just is like extra important maybe in this given moment. Yeah. I mean, and it seems you, you had given that you had submitted that talk for Norwalk probably almost a year ago, like last summer or something. Mm-hmm. And and then just the timing of your talk and Bear's talk, which I already walked away with, with, like you said, an interesting and, and what felt like an important additional viewpoint to access something I'd already seen and tried to articulate but maybe didn't wasn't able to fully articulate um but being able to pursue that more now is kind of exciting and then um yeah of course in terms of the timing it seems even all the more relevant now for astrologers to be talking about things like this yeah 100% 100% yeah Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know I could actually keep talking to you all day, but I know you have to go, so we might want to wrap up this <laughs> mm-hmm. um, episode for today. Um, but thanks a lot for for giving that talk. I hope people check out your website and buy the lecture where you go into much more detail from the, the Norwak lecture about some of these topics and some of the philosophy behind it, um, as well as some of the exercises and other, other things like that. Um, so yeah, like keep it up, and I look forward to seeing uh, where you take this work in the future. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's a, it's great to have a conversation with you. That was one of the things of just Norwalk happening digitally. I feel like we right. didn't get to have a good hang. So yeah, glad definitely. that this and, happened. Right. Um, yeah. yeah and, and hopefully the first of many. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. And uh, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons for supporting it. And uh, I guess that's it. So we'll see you again next time. All right. Bye. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, 
Arena Tudor, Thomas Miller, and Bear River, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.